Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today, we're going to talk about cybersecurity in the commodities markets. With the advent of digitization, security is only more crucial for organizations to understand and tackle, moving from the operational level to the board level as a discussion. However, it's only more crucial in the commodities markets. Commodities is a rich sector, therefore naturally a target of cyber criminals. However, it's also the confluence of national interests and geopolitics, and therefore of key interest to national actors. Our guest is Simon Hodgkinson. Simon is the former Group Chief Information Security Officer at BP, has 35 years in and around the digital world. Simon, thanks so much for joining. Great. I'm really pleased uh, you invited me along, so thank you. Excellent. I guess before we, we really dig in, can you give us the overview of what actually cybersecurity is and, and what falls under its remit? Yeah, absolutely. So, so cybersecurity, in its broadest sense, is really the application of people, technology, processes and, and controls to protect systems, um, so networks, software, uh, devices, data um, from cyber attacks. With, with the intent, of course, obviously, of reducing the risk of cyber attacks and protecting against unauthorized um, exploitation of systems, network, and, uh, and data. Mm. Which we should say, when these things happen, and the, the downsides are dramatic, right? Absolutely huge. Uh, there are numerous examples in the, uh, in the press of uh, organizations probably the most high profile one in the last few years that everybody will likely have heard of is WannaCry, which impacted the National Health Service in the UK and also not Hetcher, um, that impacted many big organizations such as Maersk, the big shipping company, and uh, reportedly cost Maersk over, over $300 million in terms of uh, in overall impact to them. Mm. And I and the anecdote there is that the they managed to retrieve their data simply because one server in Ghana was offline at the time, and they managed to get a message to the uh, the people there not to plug it back in. But uh, so all businesses face cybersecurity challenges, big and small. But in the commodities world, it's both much more targeted, but also much more crucial, critical for a number of reasons that means that commodities businesses or you know, energy, metals, ags businesses are much more focused on this topic and much more a target of, of cyber attack. Absolutely correct. I think, I think in it's, it's, it's been an interesting um, last sort of two years uh, seeing a, a, an exponential growth in, in cyber um, attacks against uh, uh, people and, and businesses as well. And it's probably just worth drawing a sort of scale. So um, you know, various reports you can pick up on the internet have said the cost of cyber crime will exceed $2 trillion in 2020, $2 trillion. Um, and uh, if you look in the UK, uh, the Department of Culture and Media um, reported that um, 40%, 46% of businesses um, have been impacted by uh, a cyber attack, 46%, which is a huge number. And a quarter of all charities uh, have reported a cyber breach in the last um, 12 months. Um, so, you know, it's a it's a big, um, big, big problem for all. But actually, when you come to commodities, 
I mean, it really is a significant interest to numerous different uh, adversaries. Um, and you pick up, uh, you know, the whole commodities place. If you look at somewhere like Saudi, um, clearly impacted by low, low oil prices at the moment, but the petroleum sector still accounts for roughly half of the GDP in Saudi and 90% of export earnings. Um, you look at somewhere like um, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo and um, um, cobalt um, is used as a big part of funding the economy there. So these commodities are of significant national interest and, and in many cases deemed critical national infrastructure. Now to an attacker, um, being able to disrupt that supply chain um, has potentially huge financial um, gain. Uh, so, so, you know, if you were, were able to disrupt the supply of a critical commodity um, and, uh, and then hold a company to and try to extort money, well, you know, there's, there's, there's a company called Coveware um, uh, that actually is a, it helps with companies that have been impacted by cyber attack. And they say the average payout for companies who choose to pay, many don't, of course, um, is around about $170,000 um, per attack. So it's big money to be earned um, from cybercrime and therefore, uh, you know, big targets of, re of real interest. So you, you've got a, a rich industry. Um, there's, it's, it's therefore naturally a target. It's also this confluence of, of national interests and, and geopolitics, and, and we'll come on to that. But beyond the money and the, you do have that, there's the, the data itself that's valuable, therefore. But also, I just want to touch on very quickly, you know, in the world of Internet of Things, there's also the ability to damage infrastructure with huge environmental impacts as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, so often people call, about, call, call that technology operational technology or process control networks or industrial control systems. So things that run, say, your power grids, and there have been a number of um, very high profile nation state attacks that have disrupted power grids for other nations, um, so being used in, in conflict zones. Um, this problem goes back a long time as well. One of the most interesting um, attacks on, um, on critical infrastructure was something called Stuxnet that occurred back in 2010 and uh, was an attack on uh, that was used to disrupt the Iranian um, nuclear program. Um, it's actually is a really great book called uh, Countdown to, to Zero Day, which was all about Stuxnet and, the, and they call it the launch of the world's first digital weapon. And, uh, and therefore it's being used, uh, cyber is increasingly being used to um, create conflict. Um, and, and, you know, with a cyber attack on a industrial control system, so if you hacked into an industrial control system and you were able to change the uh, human uh, management interface, say for a pressure valve, so that the controllers didn't realize something was over on pressure, you can cause a kinetic effect, you can cause a, an explosion, which can lead to fatalities, can use, lead to huge environmental um, disasters. And, uh, and that is going to be an increasing tool used, um, used in sort of nation state conflicts. And, and we're starting to see that increase um, every year, year on year. 
with Stuxnet, once these things have been released by nation states, they obviously then become available to other actors as well. So just obviously there's financial gain and, and financial damage. There's also this element of commodities being vital to nations' national interests and therefore the data, knowledge and information about what your competitors or other nation states are doing is incredibly valuable. And then you've also got actually this, the ability to actually damage organizations, even countries' infrastructure. And as you say, with with, with fatal results and um, you know a, a very worrying area. Can we move on to, I guess, dig in a little bit more to the players and the drivers? perhaps starting us off on at that national level, like what we're seeing there and kind of why? Yeah, sure. So so we we break, typically when we talk about adversaries, we, we talk about a number of different ones. So nation states, um, criminals, um, hacktivists, uh, so activists and, and some, some terrorism as well. Um, and then we talk about uh, insider stroke compromised individuals, and they all tend to have um, different motivations, but there is an awful lot of crossover between those different categories. Um, so there's been a numerous, again, numerous examples where nation states have um, had insiders within some very high profile government organizations, for instance. So um, the thing that's really difficult in, in the cyber world is attribution um, because it's such a, a, a complex area and there's so much obfuscation in the digital world um, that adversaries work in. It's, it's really, really difficult to, um, uh, to, to find out who the, the attacker is and, and who they, uh, who, which organizations they may be aligned to. But let's let's just pick off. So if you talk about nation states, it's typically things like um, espionage, um, so theft of intellectual property, uh, confidential information, um, and um, you know uh, government plans, etc. There's also this element, as we just talked about, is um, cyber being used as an offensive tool in uh, nation state um, conflict as well. And, uh, and increasingly uh, in the Middle East, you've seen uh, in the press a number of examples where it's been um, referenced that different nations using cyber as a, as a, a proxy for, for you know, conflict. So um, let's, let's we talk about criminals. Um, criminals uh, just make an enormous amount of money. I talked earlier about the average ransomware um, payout of $170,000. It's a, it's a very um, high reward, uh, incredibly low risk um, business for people to get into. Um, and unsurprisingly, there are more and more criminal activity going on as a result of that. Um, and, uh, and, and there is evidence that some of the nation states are also using criminal proxies to, um, to, to, to obviously get financial gain in terms of helping fund GDP, et cetera. So um, again, there's this combination of uh, where nation states and, and criminal gangs cross over. You've then got um, things like hacktivism, as we call it. So this is tends to be kind of social or ideological issues that creates a motivation to attack an organization, to make some kind of statement. And this goes back a long way. This was the days of um, taking websites down or, you know, putting a, uh, an image on a website to embarrass a company. That, that's been going on a long time. 
Terrorists are increasingly getting involved, but again, in terms of there's a crossover with criminal gangs, so cyber can be used to, to fund terrorism. And, uh, you know, we, we desperately hope people don't pay um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of paying uh, those extortions. Um, but, but they do, and, and obviously that financial gain can be used to, uh, to fund uh, terrorism. Um, then you've got things like um, revenge. So you've got disgruntled employees. Uh, so say former 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 employees, maybe um, as especially through things like COVID, companies are going through major restructuring. Um, they they can create disruption internally. Now that can be again uh, for financial gain, or it could just be to create disruption um, internally. And there again, there's lots of reports of. Um, in the press uh, in some fairly significant um, technology companies where somebody's gone rogue and created a fairly big outage within their technology environments so you've got um you've got a, a lot of different actors in the mix with a lot of different motivations and as i said it's really difficult to attribute um, any uh, any particular attack to any particular motivation at times because they tend to cross over. There is one final one as well, actually, um, which is um, cyber attackers um, often use organizations as proxies to attack other systems. So again, this world of obfuscation, this need to create scale in terms of compute power. So if you're going to run a big um, an automated network called a botnet, you typically want to um, compromise lots of systems across the globe to launch whatever attack you're going to, to launch. So um, organizations get used as proxies and equally individuals get used as proxies to, to essentially create that botnet. Yeah, this is where your computer is actually working in the background on behalf of uh, someone else unbeknownst to you. Um, so you've got this range of actors. And you've got a range of drivers behind that and goals. But it seems, at least from our discussions and my notes, there's kind of two broad classes of, of the how they do it. One is kind of this, you know, throw it at the wall, cheap and sort of broadcast method. And the other is actually much more targeted and much more determined and, you know, um, much more funded typically. Can you help us understand that sort of the, the cheap and cheerful plan first? Yeah, so, so you know, adversaries tend to use a, a wide variety of tools and methods, often procured um, on, the, on the dark web. There's, a, there's an enormous business um, model. It almost sounds like a legitimate business, how people talk about it. Um, on the dark web, where you can, you can, you can buy um, uh, different uh, malware, etc. However, um, you know, it's widely accepted that over 90% of um, successful compromises still start with some kind of phishing attempt. So, you know, an email in your inbox, which is trying to socially engineer you to, to click on a link and you click on that link and you give away your credentials, your lot username and your password. <laughs> Just to understand that. So socially engineer, you're, you're trying to get me to do an action. Simply by clicking on that link, does that provide them all of that information? Or I then need to go, I, you know, you then through to a false website and you're, you're inputting that data. Yeah, typically, typically it's the latter where you actually go and you, um, you know, once you've clicked on that link, it will ask you to enter your username and password. And um, it could look like 
you know, a, a standard um, Amazon login page. It could look like a standard Microsoft Office 365 page. And, and it, for all intents and purposes, it looks legitimate. And, and so people then type in their username and password and the attacker then has access to log into your account and um, and either yeah, you know compromise your information to do something with or potentially use your um, your account to compromise the rest of the organization. And, and it's been really, really noticeable through COVID. Um, you know, from from the moment COVID became a thing, the sheer volume of phishing attempts um, with a COVID theme play into people's emotional um, state. So if you if you get an email saying um, you've been sort of uh, you've been identified as being next to somebody who has had COVID, the chances are your immediate reaction is going to be to click on that link and do whatever the the um, the thing um, asks you to do in order to find out you know who it was, what you need to do, etc. Um, similarly, in the UK, we had this thing called a furlough scheme where organisations were, um, you know, uh, the government paid people to, I think it was 80% of their their salary um, not to work. Now, uh, there was an enormous rise in H, fake HMRC, uh, which is the, the, the tax authority, saying click on this link, you'll do a tax rebate. Now, if you've suddenly changed your uh, income profile, you're probably thinking I legitimately um, would expect to get tax rebate. So people will be clicking on those links. So, so it, 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 it has got more sophisticated. I don't want to sound like it's, um, it's just really basic. The actual, the, 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 the web pages that they, um, they, they bring up actually look very legitimate and people need to be on incredibly um, high, high alert to these and be really vigilant and be you know every email every text you get be a little bit paranoid did you expect that to occur um, does the link work properly I'd always encourage people not to click on the link so if it's an HMRC site you in the UK you would go and type it in directly you know to gov.uk and not follow the link um, because you know uh, that just makes sure it is you are going to the right place and then um, find out whether the uh, the email or the text was was legitimate. So so that that's a big bucket and, and like I said, 90% of successful compromises um, tend to start around there and and then it depends on the on the sophistication of the adversary as to to what do they do um, do next. So that yeah exactly so so. They, they're in your they'll, they'll somehow know that they're in your organization and then that's where uh, is there a, a secondary market where a compromise is then sold to other actors is that you know, is yeah absolutely yeah it, it certainly can be um there's also um you know uh, there's also uh, targeted phishing as well so um things like they call it spear phishing um, where people target individuals um, just so that they can try and get sort of sensitive information. So, you know, like with most of us, there's an awful lot of data in your email and on your uh, on your um, whatever file share you use. So if you target individuals and can get into their accounts, if there's somebody who works in mergers and acquisitions, et cetera, it's a really cheap way of 
of getting some pretty sensitive data. So you've got the, the sort of broad commodity, probably shouldn't use that term, but broad commodity uh, um, attacks with phishing where they fire and forget, but you also get more targeted spear phishing as well. And, um, and then, you know, as adversaries get into those organizations, they have more, you know, more, uh, more data, more access to sell to people who may be interested in it. Yeah, which brings us neatly onto these, the targeted and determined attack, where actually, you know, you're starting with an objective first, or, you know, a particular company, a particular slice of information within that company, or team or whatever. And you've got these nation states, or even criminals, or that combination, they're using a different suite of tools, right? Whether it's these compromised individuals, whether it's specific, you know, Stuxnet, for example, has been mentioned, you know, can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, I think, let, let's be clear, if you've got a highly resourced, highly motivated, sophisticated attacker like a nation state with all that they have, uh, all the capability they have at hand or some very highly funded criminal gangs, they will get in. So um, no doubt, um, because actually they tend to only need to be right once um, when the defenders need to rewrite 100% of the time. It's a bit of an unfair unfair battle. Um, so uh, if you're in something like the commodities interest industry, which is really interesting to all of those different attackers we've, uh, we've talked about, including hacktivists, by the way, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, potentially terrorism as well, um, you know, if you've got that highly sophisticated attacker, you've got to assume compromise. You've got to assume they will get into your network and uh, and then um, exploit um, exploit that access uh, either to steal the information thereafter or to create some kind of disruptive uh, disruptive attack. There's a there's a quote somewhat terrifying, but um, I quite like it. You know, there are, there are two organisations in the world. Um, those that know they've been compromised and those that are yet to find out. And uh, and I think you have to, as an organization, you have to assume compromise, especially if you're uh, an organization that have, are of particular interest to the, maybe the, the highest sophisticated attackers we've talked about. Yes. Whilst we're on that subject, uh, just a, there is also this the physical world as well. You've got this the phishing, you've got the viruses. If you are an organization of consequence and an individual of consequence within that organization, at the nation state level, there's also um, what hardware, what materials you take with you when you're traveling around the world as well, because that's another big source of compromise, right? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm not going to talk about any particular um, nations in this um, specifically, but you have to be sensitive to to where you're traveling to, the culture of those companies. Um are you a are you a person of interest? The vast majority of people aren't, of course. Um, but if you're going in to do some kind of M and A deal uh, into certain jurisdictions, you have to be really sensitive to what do you carry, um, what do you give over. So if you're going into into countries and they ask for um, your hardware, you just need to be really cautious about um, what you do. Um, with uh, with your phones and your your, your laptops etc uh, and again if you if you are a person of interest be absolutely vigilant in terms of making sure that kit is with you all the time i mean how many people who are on business trips kind of leave their laptops plugged in in a hotel room 
well, actually, there are some places in the world I would highly encourage you not to do that. And equally, locking them in a safe in some of those places is insufficient. Uh, in a in a hotel safe is insufficient um, because you know um, the, the 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 hotel will likely have been had compromised individuals themselves. So you just need to be really sensitive to the cultures and the the environment you're walking into, and make sure that you protect your information and your assets um, really well um, and appropriately in those environments. So I guess this brings us on to mitigation. And I think taking the, the, the very clear statement about the fact that there's, with those determined actors, there's probably very ultimately little you can do if they're well-funded and all the rest of it. Um, but in general, can you just give us a, an overview? I recognize this is a huge topic, but just in general, from a technology standpoint, from a people and processes standpoint, how should organizations start to go around thinking about mitigation and also what kind of team and design should they put from an organizational standpoint around actually supporting this? Absolutely. I just, just want to pick up that last point, if I may. Um, the, I think there is more we can do um, for those highly sophisticated attackers. It won't stop them getting in necessarily. Um, but I think there's a, there's a growing need for companies to invest in, in threat intelligence. And a lot of companies do, and there are still many that, that, that don't. And this is, this is in information that allows you to understand the nature of the adversaries who are likely to come after you. And having a threat intelligence program is, is, is really important because it does two things. One, it can help you defend yourselves. And look out for those uh, those tactics that that particular adversary might use. But the other thing it allows you to look backwards. So as they change and, and pivot, and you know more about the way they they attack companies, you can constantly look back to see whether you've been compromised in the past, and understand what information may or may not have uh, have been um, uh, taken out of your organisation as a result. So I think there's more we can do i absolutely agree with the point that actually if they are highly resourced and dedicated they will get in but but actually back to your your question sorry to go off on a tangent there but the the first thing every organization needs to do is manage cyber risk um, as you would any other risk in the organization and for whatever reason um, cyber risk seems to be handled differently in many um, I would say cyber risk should be on the board agenda of every company now. It doesn't matter whether they're small, medium or large. This needs to be an active conversation at the board level and the board need to own the, own the risk. Um, and, 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 and therefore, from top down through executive leadership, everybody in the organization is made aware of the role they have to play. As I said earlier, all it can take is one individual to click on a link and uh, and suddenly you've exposed uh, exposed the company equally at that board conversation every business every strategy decision you need you, you make needs to have cyber due diligence as part of it so if you're going to make a, a, an acquisition for instance um, you need to make sure there's the appropriate due diligence on the, on the security posture of that organization i mean just by way of an example um, the UK uh, privacy watchdog find Marriott. Um, it was eight, 18 million pounds in the end. It started off for about 100 million, um, 
for a major data breach um, uh, that started in Starwoods, um, which they acquired in, in uh, that the attack happened in 2014, but Marit acquired them later than that. So they essentially, um, you know, if they've done some more due diligence, they may have found that. So I would, I would highly encourage that you start, if you don't start at the board conversation, you're already on the losing battle. It has to, has to be at that level. Mm. It's interesting that I, I, I want to carry on on the people aspect, but it strikes me that in the same way that you would audit, you know, know your customer, right? Audit, audit your supply chains um, up and down. This seems a crucial topic to start actually having insight on whether the people who are providing you services or you're selling to also have a similarly robust approach to cybersecurity. Absolutely spot on. Uh, I mean, this is not you can't outsource the accountability um, for cyber risk, you know, uh, so, so you've got a supply chain. Um, if they if they have a uh, some kind of cyber attack that uh, affects your brand and your reputation, well, it's, it's you that are impacted. So you need to make sure that that um, that you have a, a cyber program that are looking at um, supplier security or business partner um, security, whatever your your language you use. Uh, and using companies that um, that do have a good security posture. Now there are many that do, and there are equally that many that don't. And, and what we're seeing more and more regularly now is where big organisations that have invested in in cyber and have a fairly good posture, um, cyber security posture. No, nothing's perfect, by the way, because it's always a risk-based decision based on company tolerances. But actually, um, what the what the adversaries do is they go after the supply chain, which tends to be the weak underbelly. And when you expose the supply chain, for instance, you know, um, somebody who potentially, you know, sends an invoice into your corporation looks like it's come from the, the right person. It's got the, the right branding. It's asking broadly the right the, the right information to pay an invoice or change a bank account. If it's come from the legitimate organisation, lots of people still pay that, and they don't. They don't have rigorous business processes to to catch catch those issues. But you, you have to. You have to assume somewhere in the environment they've been compromised, and equally only work with suppliers that are investing in cyber. Mm. So you've got. I think it's you know there's the technology piece of this, right? Which is better firewalls, all that you know, piece. But in reality just like your comments about the board level this is about people and processes is about training and understanding information can you talk to that and i think one of the real challenges here is organizationally where do you put your cybersecurity officer and also there isn't this is a there's a real war for talent as i understand it going on about finding people who can actually implement these stuff because it's a you know the the the, the risks are going exponential and the prevalence is, is increasing as well yeah, so, so spot on. I mean, cyber cyber awareness and education needs to be in place for every employee and and and, and every third party who have access to your systems. Um, and back to that third party point, you should have in your contracts with them security obligations as well. Um, even though you may feel like you're outsourcing stuff to them, being absolutely crystal clear on your expectations in those contracts is really important. But when it comes to to your staff. Um, just having a general awareness of cyber and, and a regular awareness in the same way in, in sort of in, in a trading environment, you get your um, compliance training, 
you know, plenty of plenty of different compliance modules you have to take. You, you have to do the same with cyber. And, and But with cyber, I think you have to make it engaging. Sometimes it can come across as being a deeply technical thing that people can't engage with. So, um, you know, what we tend to, what I'd encourage people to do is, is to try and um, make it engaging and something people can take back and share with their, uh, their loved ones uh, and people who are important to them. Um, so that they can raise general awareness because this, you know, most people know somebody who's had a horrific um, uh, experience of, of being um, had a cyber attack in some way. Yeah, it's at the company level and the individual level, right? You know, yeah, the same rules apply about multi-factor authentication, not having the same password for everything and not clicking on links as it does in your company, as it does at home. Yeah, so so again, I think the, on, on top of the general awareness, specific training for high-risk individuals is, is also really important. So I talked about sort of people who are in the, in the process, who process payments and, and this increasing vector. It's called business email compromise, where a, a legitimate counterparty is compromised and sends a request in for payment or change a bank account, etc., then, then you know, having having specific training in place uh, and a really rigorous business process that they follow 100% of the time is critical. There is no technology that can 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 protect you from that. So it does become a people and a process issue. A few other, just a few other quick thoughts. I mean, you know, security has historically been um, added on to stuff. So, you know, there'll be a cyber security program that layers more and more software in that just gets in the way of people doing business. I think that's destined to fail and, and security has to be embedded in the user experience. Because if you make um, cyber security hard for people, they'll tend to work around it. Um, so, you know, things like um, protecting information. If you make it difficult to, for an individual to protect information, they'll start sharing it on some third party capability so so you've got to be really thoughtful about um how you how you um how you build security into into people's day jobs in a way that it doesn't become a, a friction they have to deal with mm, i find it fascinating that I means um you know right now there's a lot of debate going on about um, some of these messaging apps and what information they share with their their parent companies um, and if we think about the amount of information that gets transferred on services like whatsapp or whatever it might be you know, that's a significant source of compromise um, that all businesses face and precisely because those tools are so easy to use. Yeah, spot on. And what, one, of my, um, one of my particular um, frustrations actually is, I mean, because, because downloading an app is so easy to do, use, uh, it's so easy to do nowadays, how many people read the terms and conditions? And then the compliance issues. And I think that's where, you know, there's a lot of platforms out there that are trying to solve this. So looking toward the future, first off, it strikes me that on the assumption that you are, if you are a company of interest, a person of interest, you, you, you likelihood it, or at least you need to act like you are, you have been compromised. Are there certain things that organizations, you know, that should not be in, in a they should be on closed circuit tv so to speak or they should be on pen and paper as opposed to on 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 accessible via servers i think this this the the the, the role of the CISO is a really interesting in realm um, and thoroughly enjoyed it by the way um but it's every day the the decisions are a balance between 
um, allowing the business to operate and cybersecurity. So there's never there's never a, a binary answer. It's it's always a, a risk based decision. Now in practice, um, pen and paper would never work in 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 the new digital economy. But the reality is that you know you're not going to get um, compromised for that. So I think you need to be really thoughtful about. Uh, understanding the value of the assets you're working with and applying appropriate security controls to those uh, those assets and for other assets that maybe not as high value um, then perhaps have less of uh, less of an overhead in terms of security so for instance if you're if you've got your um, you know year end or, or quarter results coming out um, that you know you 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 just cannot afford to be released or leaked to the market. Then you need to make sure that you've got really tight security. Now that may have an impact on the end user experience as you lock things down and you put more and more controls and mitigations in place. Um, but if you're going to send an email to your um, you know your, your friend about going out on a night out, well nobody cares about that. So don't apply the same levels of control on 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 those things. So it's about understanding the value of the assets, whether it's a piece of software, whether it's a, an industrial control facility, whether it's a, a a particular piece of data that you want to protect, and 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 maybe some of the higher risk access, you do build friction into the system, and some of the others. Um, you you put less friction in, but it's really moving from. You talked about firewalls earlier. It's, the world's moving away from that sort of perimeter, if you like, where you could lock everything behind firewalls to this cloud-based world where you consume software as a service from many many organisations or infrastructure for your servers that are not in your data centres anymore. Um, so you have to think about the asset and how you secure the asset and the data and um, and and you know uh, I, and people's identities as well, rather than, uh, than than this world of where we used to try and build this big perimeter around uh, around those assets. Fascinating. I, I want to finish up on on ESG. So you've got companies more and more being scored, access to capital, market capitalization based around things beyond just you know free cash flow where do you think in the future the whole this whole aspect given the consequences you know huge consequences for individuals and for businesses for nation states where do you think this sits within that the g the governance piece in the coming decade yeah it's it's a it's a it's a growing conversation actually and and this talk now about potentially having cyber ratings agencies um, that could uh, could affect your um, ESG ratings, um, and I think you know, uh, I think inevitably it will move towards that. Whether it will whether it will be the same as kind of uh, credit rating agencies, I, I'm not sure whether it will ever get to that level. But increasingly, um, people will look, especially companies that manage things that are so critical to the the national infrastructure. There's going to be an expectation that you have a really strong cybersecurity program in place, and the regulators will get increasingly interested um, in cyber. So you've seen it with things like GDPR um, in Europe, um, which is about privacy regulation. That has turned out to be broadly a template for the rest of the world. Um, so places like India, the, you know, different states in the U.S. are applying similar privacy uh, regimes. 
we've got things like the um, um, uh, the, the uh, standards around security in, in the industrial assets. So it, it tends to be security of supply. So if you're supplying, I don't know, a critical commodity, you're likely to get um, government regulators, uh, certainly already in the UK and Europe, um, but likely to increase across the world, increasing that regulation, increasing the bar um, and that you've got to achieve with, of course, external audit coming in and checking your 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 making uh, making the right interventions. Um, I, I would will add one thing: cybersecurity is really expensive to retrofit. Um, so now's the time to get it right. So especially as the world is is going through this digital um, explosion, uh, you know everything is being digitized from the big industrial assets through every business end-to-end -end business process now is the time to get security right because actually it's phenomenally expensive to retrofit as you say the, the costs are much much higher trying to retroactively implement this but sometimes those costs of getting it wrong are existential particularly in this commodity you know where the reputational damage which includes access to liquidity capital talent all of those things becomes so devastating that um, organizations can cease to exist. Yeah, it is an existential threat. And, and the other thing maybe to try and think about building in is that I think increasingly you're seeing in the general population this notion of digital trust. So actually we talk about it being a cost, but actually it can also be an enabler if you get it right. Um, and, 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 you know, if you build up that trust, with your uh, with your counterparties, um, etc., then um, that could be a big differentiator for you growing your business, not not just the cost of managing your business. Yeah, it's been a fascinating discussion, Simon, and and I think uh, certainly an eye opener for me digging into this. And like all of these challenges, there's opportunities around them, but it, I think it's one of those things where it needs focus and it needs attention because this is going to be an increasingly it has been, but it's going to going forward be an increasingly important aspect of of this world as it continues to digitize um so thank you very much for your insight it's a pleasure and, and if, if possible let leave one message for your your audience and that's you mentioned the term mfa as i said 90 percent of successful attacks um, typically come through phishing if you turn on mfa in your organization that will protect you against the vast vast majority of those commodity attacks and it's extraordinary how few companies have done it um, at the moment. So if you haven't, get your security team on to turning that on. It is so critical. And then you can focus on the you know, more sophisticated attackers and, and making sure you, uh, you address those, uh, those risks. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.